This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Siemens. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. The country's aging infrastructure is taking center stage in Washington and across America. U.S. Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm joins Washington Post Live to discuss the Biden administration's plan for building a sustainable infrastructure, including grid security, clean energy, and combating climate change. Governor Steve Sisolak of Nevada also joins the Post to discuss his ambitious infrastructure goals for Nevada, including a $75 million investment and a variety of job-creating proposals, including electric vehicles and other energy-efficient programs. Good afternoon. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Welcome to Washington Post Live. America has great infrastructure needs, and official Washington, from the Biden White House to Congress, is smack in the middle of efforts to pass legislation to address them as we speak. Uh, This afternoon, we're examining those infrastructure needs in two important conversations. Up first, Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm. Secretary Granholm, Welcome to Washington Post Live. Thanks so much. I I am, can I just say though, I know this is live, but I'm having a little trouble hearing you. I don't know if the audience is too. I'm wondering if there's a way to turn up his microphone. Um, Well, I know I am am not muted. There, that's better, that's Ah, better. Secretary, I'll do it again. Secretary Granholm, welcome to Washington (laughs) Post Live. Thank you, thank you so much. Glad to be on, great to be on with you in particular. Right. I was going to say, it's my first time seeing you since you became Secretary of Energy. So let's jump right on in. In an interview with the Arizona Republic last week, Senator Kristen Sinema said, quote, we know that a changing climate costs Arizonans. And right now we have the opportunity to pass smart policies to address it. Looking forward to that. As we get down to the wire on negotiations over the reconciliation bill, how often have you spoken to Senator Sinema? I have not spoken with cinema, I, Senator Cinema. I've mm-hmm. spoken with Senator Manchin, but others have been speaking with Senator Cinema. And so um, it, she says that climate is, a, is, is important to her in the reconciliation bill. She's not alone in that, both in the House and the Senate. Uh, climate is, is big for folks. But would it, would it be a failure if the reconciliation package doesn't have anything related to climate in that bill. Yeah, it would be. It would be a failure, not just in legislative policy, not just for the president, it'd be a failure for the country, for the planet, for people who want to be able to take, you know, get jobs in this $23 trillion global market for for clean energy jobs. I mean, it's it would be, um, it would be really not just, I mean, it just would be very unwise, I'll say, and very mm-hmm. much a disappointment for for the planet, for the country, and for, for jobs for people across the nation. Well, then, Secretary, how confident are you that we are actually going to get a reconciliation bill that would then lead to passage of the bipartisan infrastructure plan that the Senate has already passed? I'm There's a lot of pessimism good. in Washington. You're feeling pretty good. Why? I know. Why? There's a lot of pe- Because it is... Um, because... I think the cards are uh, on the table and the players are picking them up. I think there's, <laughs> it's not going to be exactly as, you know, people have described it. It might be a little bit different. This is what negotiations all about, obviously. 
But I am confident that there, certainly in the climate space, that there will be significant legislation passed. Okay, I'm gonna one more question on this, and then we'll get into some specifics. Now, you you said just now might not be exactly as it has been described. To my ear, that sounds like it might not be 3.5 trillion. It might be something else, which tracks with what I've heard Speaker Pelosi say earlier today, where she said we're waiting to hear from the president what the number will be. For folks who are watching out there, which is more important? The price tag at 3.5 trillion, or what the 3.5 trillion is being spent on? Well, the programs that are identified are the most important, obviously. So, what what is it that is part of the president's Build Back Better agenda? If there's a different way to skin the cat, if there's a different way to get those those very important programs for people um, accomplished, then, you know, maybe it doesn't look exactly as it was initially proposed. But the bottom line is the president is committed to the full agenda. Um, most, uh, the vast majority, if not almost every single one of the members of Congress of his party are committed to it. So I think we're going to see something very significant. Mm -hmm. um, this week? <laughs> Well, that I wish I, I where is my crystal ball, my Ouija board? Um, you know, as you know, as we speak, things are happening. Right. So I, um, I'm not that good at prognosticating, but I do think that it's, um, that we'll know, we'll know soon. We'll know right. by tomorrow, <laughs> whether it's this week. Uh oh, <laughs> well, that's true. All right. Let's talk, let's talk nitty gritty. Um, if the physical infrastructure bill pa uh, passes the House and is signed by President Biden into law, how will America's infrastructure improve in the next six to 12 months? Okay, roads. I mean, how many, the average citizen right now spends $500 on average a year fixing their car because of the potholes that they have hit. Bridges, we've got massive number of bridges that are, we have like a, a D as a grade by civil engineers in the lousy condition of our bridges. Airports, all you have to do is to go to one of the New York airports or New Jersey and see how we need to invest in our airports. Anybody who's traveled abroad knows that it, that many of them are an embarrassment. We want to have uh, good bones in this country, broadband in every pocket of rural America, how fantastic, eliminating lead pipes so that children don't have lead poisoning by drinking pipes at home from pipes at home or at school. Those are really significant. And in addition, in my column of responsibility, making sure that we invest in our transmission grids so that we don't have towers falling down into the Mississippi River every time we have a severe weather event or that we're not having wires in California sparking forest fires. We want to make sure we have the means to be able to have a resilient grid, a grid that has the capacity to be able to add the renewable energy that we've got to add onto it, and a grid that's safe from, from cyber uh, actors, from malign actors. So those are really important. And then one other thing I would mention, there's a lot, of course, in this infrastructure bill, but one other thing that's important, again, in my area of responsibility is making sure that people, when they buy electric vehicles, have places to fuel them. Right now, the private sector has been very good about putting charging stations in area areas where they can have a return on investment. Those are often higher um, higher income areas. Those are often areas where there's a greater concentration of electric vehicles. But 
we need to put them all over so that there isn't range anxiety so that people can fuel when they're on the highways or in, in areas that don't have as great of a penetration in rural areas of electric vehicles because we want people to buy those electric vehicles. So that's also in the bipartisan infrastructure plan, 250,000 electric vehicle stations. Um, since you brought up the grid, I need to bring up a, a Washington Post um, story where we reported recently that nearly one in three Americans had experienced a weather disaster in the past three months, fueled by rising temperatures. Many of these events have exposed vulnerabilities of the grid, some of which you just talked about. And you talked about things that need to be, that could be done in the future, but what's being done now to upgrade to upgrade the grid? Well, not enough for sure. I mean, that's why the bipartisan infrastructure plan give, puts in place a grid development authority to be able to do those things. But we've got, you know, we've got electric grids on poles that were established in the 1950s with wires hanging on the top. I mean, they, it's just complete, it's not designed for a 21st century uh, country. It's just not. So they, they things have to be replaced. Some areas they've got to be undergrounded. The wires do, you know, and, and honestly, the grid is responsible for a lot of the agony in, when these extreme weather events happen. So whether it's in Texas where they hadn't weatherized or in, you know, in New Orleans or anywhere where there's a hurricane which blow over these old poles or in California when they have a drought and it's exacerbated by a sparking from wires. Um, we need to upgrade the grid um, just quickly, just so that you mm -hmm. get the sense of the exponential increase in these extreme weather events and what it's costing us by not by not addressing climate change and resilience. In the 1980s, Jonathan, we spent about $18 billion a year to clean up after extreme weather events. In the last three years, we have spent $120 billion a year cleaning up after these mm. extreme weather events. So the exponential increase is astonishing. We have just experienced a record summer, record heat. It is gonna be the coolest summer we ever experience if we do not get on it. And so there is, it is code red for humanity and we need to invest both in re resilience and in, and in making sure we add the capacity for clean energy so we can reach the climate goals that will mitigate and stop this continued climate warming, weirding really. Right, climate weirding. Um, um, you're anticipating the question I was gonna ask about um, the climate goals because the president has, um, has a goal of making America uh, carbon free by 2050. So yep. what actions will be taken in the next year to move in that direction? Because this has to happen regardless of whether there's an infrastructure bill coming out of Congress. Totally. Um, there will be an infrastructure bill coming out of Congress. I'm really confident of that. But yeah, yes, we need to deploy, deploy, deploy clean energy technologies that are ready to go. So we had a record year last year in the installation of both wind and solar. That's great. We need to double and triple the amount that we have already been installing in a record year. We need to add thousand, more than a thousand gigawatts of clean energy on the grid by 2035 if we're going to meet the president's goal of 100% clean electricity by 2035, not to mention a net zero carbon economy by 
2050. So, um, you know, the Department of Energy, let me just talk about our little neck of the woods. We are the solutions department. We have 17 national labs, almost 100,000 people who are working on solutions to next generation technologies that will help us to achieve those goals. But we also have stuff that is ready to deploy right now. And so both need to happen. We need to continue to do the research and development for those next generation solutions. And we have to deploy what we have right now. And it's not just wind and solar, renewable energies include hydropower, geothermal, the heat that is beneath our feet that we could be pulling up and that we just simply do not do enough of in this country, hydrokinetic power. So tidal power, wave power off of the shores. I mean, there's just so much out there that we could be doing that is clean, including nuclear. So all of that is zero carbon, all of that we have to deploy. See, as you were as you were enumerating all of the, articulating all of those things, I was sitting there waiting. I'm, she's not saying it, but what about nuclear? But nuclear is part of is part of the mix. Absolutely. I mean, we want if the goal is zero carbon emissions, clean and ideally clean baseload power so that it's reliable and dispatchable. And nuclear is part of that mix. The next generation nuclear. Uh, that is being researched right now. Now, nuclear is slower. So there is slower in terms of developing and, excuse me, and, and establishing uh, a nuclear plant. But uh, we have to also do no harm, which means to keep the existing nuclear fleet online because nuclear right now provides 52% of our existing clean, meaning zero emission technology. So let's not pull that down and then have to you know, find other ways to get to get reliable power. Let's make sure that our nuclear is safe, that we've got a place to a safe place to dispose of the waste and continue to work on the next generation technologies, which have less waste and are much more flexible. Um, I want to apologize in advance if you hear the uh, uh, fire sirens in the background. But, you know, in talking about clean energy and moving, you know, car uh, America to being carbon free by 2050, we got to talk about fossil fuels, and I apologize in, in advance if this question is sort of out of your bail, out of your bailiwick. But you know, the president's talking about infrastructure being a job creator, and but we know that moving away from fossil fuels, thousands of jobs are going to be lost in certain sectors. And uh, you and West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin visited West Virginia in June to tout clean energy, but that's a state that's lived on coal. Uh, and made its, its, you know, living by coal mining for generations. And West Virginia has lost 56% of its mining jobs since 2009. So, so what is being done uh, to transition people from the fossil fuel jobs to the clean energy jobs of the future? I mean, for states like West, West Virginia, is there a clean energy future for Absolutely. them? Absolutely. Totally a thousand percent. Those miners have powered our country for a hundred years and they created, you know, energy 1.0. That same spirit should be powering our country for the next 100 years, but using clean technologies. And the good thing is that the technologies associated with next generation um, energy are, are often have skill sets that are commensurate with those that are doing mining right now, for example. So mining is subsurface, right? Geothermal is subsurface. Or we need to also do responsible, responsible extraction of critical minerals for the batteries that we want to put into our electric vehicles. Or we want to attach 
heavy technology to fossil fuel um, plants that are doing, for example, natural gas, could be doing coal, uh, you know, depends on whether there's a good match, but that technology, maintaining it, installing it, manufacturing it, those are all jobs that could be done by those who have been working in energy 1.0. There is a, a whole array of opportunities. Let's, I mean, I, I haven't even touched on renewables, right? Solar and wind. Right. We want to be able to, with the bipartisan, not, excuse me, with the reconciliation bill, there is a bill that John Ossoff is supporting. It will create incentives for the full supply chain for solar panel manufacturing and the supplies to it. So the racks, the trackers, um, to be able to be manufactured in America. Where are they going to manufacture them? Well, West Virginia has a steel company that called West Virginia Steel that could be making the racks for the track and trackers for those solar panels. The bottom line is the supply chain, it's just such a massive sector, this clean energy uh, sector. It's not one industry. It is 20 industries and so much in there are commensurate with the skill set that already are uh, displayed by, by those who are working in fossil fuels now, not just in, in coal, but in, in gas, oil, et cetera. But we wanna be able to offer them those and good paying jobs, union jobs, that we don't want them to feel like they've gotta go be coders and have nobody coming with a new job for them. So the jobs have to be directed. This is another reason why the, the tax credits, for example, that Joe Manchin has supported, incentivizes the location of manufacturing for clean energy into communities that are formerly fossil fuel communities, old industrial sites. They wanna make sure that they go to places that are hurting. And those, those policy pieces are critical for the people who are working in those industries. Mm -hmm. uh, in a few moments, I'm going to be speaking with Nevada Governor Steve Sisolak, and I'm wondering, what are you hearing from governors around the country about what they need and want from Washington to help uh, to help them handle their infrastructure needs? I mean, Nevada's done a great job, and they just passed a great clean, clean energy bill. But Nevada, you know, talk about a state that has access to land and sun to be able to do utility-scale solar. So they've got one of the largest solar plants in the country, in Nevada, right near the Hoover Dam. It's a place called Townsite Solar. This is the classic example of what this could look like and that Nevada could replicate and other states could replicate. Huge solar site. They are using American-made solar panels from First Solar in Ohio. The racks that they are using are called Next Tracker. That's an American company. They want to locate in West Virginia, potentially, if they get this incentive to be able to locate in the US rather than having the production of that supply chain offshore. The, the, the panels are being put up by the, the IBEW. The foreman who I met when I was there, her name is uh, Raquel Dexter. She makes 50 bucks an hour. When she started out, she made 27 an hour with benefits loaded onto the top of that. Mm. These are good paying union jobs. I'm just saying the opportunity for job creation all in all pockets of America is huge. And, and, and Governor Sisolak knows that they have been doing a great job in that and they wanna be the solar king, I think of the United States. <laughs> um, and you know, you have been a governor, you were the governor of, of, um, of Michigan. Um, so being a governor, you had to meet a budget. Uh, un, uh, unlike what's happening in the next couple of days here. Yes. Can, can you're America- bringing, You're giving me a headache just thinking about those <laughs> days. 
Well, I well, I want you to put put that governor's hat on, and I'm just wondering, can can America afford a one trillion dollar bipartisan infrastructure bill, and potentially a three point five trillion dollar human infrastructure bill? Can the can America afford that? I mean, Jonathan, you're assuming that that is going right onto the tab when it is paid for entirely. I mean, this is why the the proposal to be able to make people who are very wealthy pay their fair share, because right now as a percentage, they don't pay their fair share, or corporations who have not paid their fair share, who are taking advantage of loopholes to avoid taxation altogether, if we can have that fairness embedded in how you pay for this, what's not to love? Honestly, why would we want to reward people who are cheating out of their taxes, who have benefited from the public investments that got them to that wealthy spot, who have been, who have driven their cars on the roads to their factories that may be making stuff that they are not paying taxes on. Why wouldn't we be asking them to contribute instead of giving them the means to avoid responsibility for collectively investing in our schools, our, our law enforcement, our cities, our roads, it's that that's wrong. So bottom line is this is paid for. And that's what I, as a governor, I can tell you, it's hundred percent paid for. This is exactly what we should be doing because the benefits of those investments are going to really propel America forward, both the infrastructure and the human infrastructure for our people. So I'm really excited about the fact that there's not gonna be a dime added to the debt or deficit and uh, the people who should be paying, will be paying, and, and working people, middle class will be benefiting. So then there, there are two things in, in, in what you said, that there's pushback coming from the right. One, we know Republicans don't, you know, one of the reasons why it's gonna have to, the reconciliation bill has to be done by reconciliation is because Republicans don't agree with taxing those who make $400,000 a year or, or more and, and the super wealthy. And then on the other hand, you have folks on the right who are like, what's this human infrastructure? Why can't we just focus on roads and bridges? For the folks who are listening out there or for just Americans who can't wrap their heads around that, why, from your vantage point, why is it important that we think more broadly about infrastructure? You've already, you've already answered the question about why <laughs> why uh, super wealthy people should, should pay their fair share. But when it comes to expand, to broadening the definition of infrastructure, why is that appropriate? Well, because this is, the, these are the necessary things for people to be successful in a 21st century global economy. Other countries, for example, are helping their working class and middle-class people pay for childcare. Anybody who has kids, knows that if you have two kids and you're paying $800 a week for childcare, you have to think twice about whether some one of the parents is even going to be able to afford to go to work. Do we want an economy that is allowing and inviting people to work? Or do we want to force people to have only one income uh, earner at home? If they, if they choose to, of course, that's totally fine. But most countries are helping and we should be doing that too, making housing more affordable. Why isn't that a piece of the infrastructure of our lives? Making elder care more affordable. Why isn't that a piece of the infrastructure of our lives? Making uh, two years community college 
uh, tuition free so that we can make sure that we have the workforce that we need to compete in the 21st century. That's an important piece of, of infrastructure broadly defined. I know it's not roads and bridges. Broadband wasn't infrastructure in the 1990s. It is today. No one would deny it. Roads weren't infrastructure like that in the 1920s. Well, they are today. So our infrastructure needs evolve depending on what is happening. Technology evolves. So I, I just think the reason why 70% in recent polls like this plan including the pay-fors. People like it more when they know that the that the tax structure will be reevaluated to ensure that everybody pays their fair share and that those who are very wealthy are paying uh, a little bit more because they have benefited a lot more from from you know having their business in America. Um, I think that this is why it's so popular because people like what we're doing. People like what you're doing. And uh, the private sector, I mean, it, I, maybe I'm so deep in, in all of this, I haven't noticed, but you know, where's the private sector in pushing this along, in pushing along at least the agenda of let's fix America's infrastructure? Yeah, the private sector has been a real partner in the bipartisan infrastructure bill, so that you know, I mean, there's, uh, there's been enormous support almost across the board for that bipartisan infrastructure bill. The, you know, to be honest, they have been a little more quiet when it comes to the reconciliation bill because there is an increase in the corporate tax rate. Not, uh, doesn't take it back up to where it was during the Obama era, takes it to about 26%. But, um, you know, nobody, the tax cuts that happened during under Donald Trump Nobody was even asking for the tax rate to go as low as it did. Everybody thought it was going to be around 25 or 26 percent. So it was a huge windfall for corporations. So just come on. Everybody needs to pay their fair share. And by the way, if the, the government helps to pay for, for child care, if the government helps to pay for um, the child care tax credits so that people can go to work, that's a good thing for them. That's really helpful for them. If it pays for college tuition, that's really helpful for them, community college anyway. So, you know, it's, and I will say that certainly there's a lot of the, the renewable energy industry, the clean energy industry, who really like a lot of what they see in the reconciliation bill. So it's not a uniform opposition, but obviously the business, uh, business community, I think would ben will benefit enormously mm -hmm. when the economy really roars because we have structured the economy in a way that makes them successful too. Secretary, we're, we're running out of time, but I got to squeeze in two two more questions. Um, the right, first one is no, 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 no. <laughs> the infrastructure package, both of them, the bipartisan bill and the reconciliation bill, are paramount to the president's overall domestic agenda. What what do you think? Well, what is the political price um, he might pay if he can't get? one or both of them through a Democratic Congress where the House and the Senate are, have Democratic majorities? All right, here's a good answer. I'm not going to buy the hypothetical. I think he's going to get uh, significant pieces of his agenda through, and it will be, um, it will be amazing. Okay, I'm just surprised, actually, Secretary, you answered the question. <laughs> the, well, I that, answered that it by not answering it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. You know what? 
actually, that's right. That is true. You got me. All right. Um, here, the, the last question for you um, is this. You've been in the cabinet since February, and as I mentioned before, you were previously the governor of the great state of Michigan, two-term governor of the great state of Michigan. Which is the better job? Oh, uh, well, let me just, I'll start this by saying, remember I was governor during the bankruptcies in the auto industry, the meltdown there, the highest unemployment rate in the nation as a result of the bankruptcies in our largest industry. So it was a really hard, but really important time. This, uh, in this job, I am, moving forward the things that I wanted to do as governor, but didn't have the resources to be able to do it. And I have a fantastic boss. So this is really a dream job. Actually, I have a little bit more time. So I'm just going to squeeze in one extra question because you reminded me of when you were governor right in the middle of, uh, of all of that. And with all the talk of um, electric vehicles and the government pushing real hard um, on electric vehicles, what do you say to folks, um, to folks on the right, to conservatives who say, government shouldn't be telling me what kind of car to drive? No, we're not telling you. We're just giving you an option. And once you drive one, you will find it irresistible. And I will say that the creation of this whole uh, car 2.0, this uh, electric vehicle, is a huge economic opportunity for this country. And it is not the government that's telling, for example, the entire auto industry who raised their hand and said, we are going to sell half of our fleet, make half of our fleet be electric vehicles by 2030. That's, that's their decision. And you know what? They see, as we say in Michigan, they see where the puck is going. They know that electric vehicles are here to stay. They're only growing. They see it as a market opportunity. We should be embracing this because, of course, transportation emissions are one-third of the greenhouse gas emissions right now. And if we want to cut them, let's go all, all electric. And with that, let's leave it there. Secretary Granholm, so great to see you. Thank you Thanks. very, very much for coming to Washington Post Live. You bet. And I'll be back in a moment to continue this discussion with the governor of Nevada, Steve Sisolak. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Mayor Gallego, it's great to see you again. Thanks so much for joining me today. It's so good to be with you and have this important conversation. Mayor, I've called the Bipartisan Infrastructure Agreement a proposal to build for the next century of American growth and leadership. And I know you were among 360 mayors who signed a letter supporting the agreement. So let's start there. How can passing the bill in Washington support mayors like yourself who are really on the front lines of COVID-19 response, economic growth, climate action, and building more equitable communities? We have an incredibly diverse group of mayors in this country, but we all are where the, the um, action is really happening on infrastructure. We have to be able to deliver water and a good commute to the people who live in our community. So that 360 mayors represents Democrats, independents, Republicans, rural mayors, urban mayors from every corner of our country. We're excited about the potential and that this investment could really catapult us to a huge leadership role. America benefited from visionary investments in infrastructure in the past, whether it be our interstate freeway system or building a strong network of airports that connected our country. There are some other countries right now that have been investing in infrastructure ahead of us. This is our chance to catch up. 
It will help address so many of the challenges, including putting people to work who are still in transition from the COVID pandemic. It will help us address some of the areas that have really been un underinvested in, whether that be rural areas or low-income communities. And it also reflects the fact that we have an incredibly diverse country. So there are many tools that allow mayors to make targeted investments, whether it's modernizing the technology at airports in our community or investing in fighting climate change. Let me spotlight the Energy Efficiency and Conservation Block Grant Program, which is co-sponsored by my predecessor as Phoenix Mayor, Greg Stanton. It says that communities can make investments that make sense. So Phoenix is one of the nicest places in the country in December. We don't have to worry a lot about intense winter heating and, and freezing. But that is a huge challenge for some of my fellow mayors in, for example, the Northeastern United States. So it lets them invest in wintertime challenges, but gives me the chance to look at the most innovative technologies for cooling and how can we integrate solar energy, which is a big deal in one of the cities that has the most sun anywhere in the country. So this is a smart bill that recognizes what might be a challenge in Michigan is different than what is a challenge in Phoenix, but that infrastructure can move us all forward together. Great insights. And what I'd love to do is delve into some of the specifics in transportation. Like you, Mayor, Siemens believes the future of transportation is electric. Uh, we've installed more than 75,000 EV chargers nationwide, and we're planning to manufacture now more than a million chargers here in the U.S. We're also working with partners to ensure that all new vehicles are electric by 2030. How would federal investment in electric vehicles benefit Phoenix? Federal investment in electric vehicles would be huge for us. We are very committed to our transit system, but we're also a large city geographically, and we know that EVs can go into any corner of our community. We care a lot about climate change and emissions, and we want to have a technology that will help us reduce those. Um, it's also exciting for me personally. I have a, a family that comes from Michigan in the automotive industry, and at the same time, before running for office, I worked in energy innovation. So I know what this technology could mean for our future as a community. The Phoenix area is often called the Electric Valley because we have a very strong concentration of EV companies. We are celebrating National Electric Drive Week or National Drive Electric Week right now and are really trying to move forward with investments in the area. Uh, Phoenix has long been a leader in sustainable fleet. We actually have 73% of our city fleet uses non-traditional fuels, including electric vehicles. But we want to go to the next step in partnership with our local community. Our IBEW electric workers are already training the next generation of apprentices to install the charging infrastructure. We believe that it would represent 83,000 jobs just in Arizona to make this bold investment in electric vehicles. And it would save $270 million a year at the gas pump. And it's just such a pleasant commute in an electric vehicle. So we're, we're betting big with our EV strategy at the city level, and we're excited to have federal partners to connect us and to make sure wherever you go in our country, there'll be strong charging infrastructure to meet you when you get there. Now, Mayor, we've been proud to build new light rail vehicles for Phoenix. 
And I know that transit is another critical priority for you, and the infrastructure agreement would put forward historic investments in this space. You see this not just as a job creator and a way to improve air quality and commutes, but as a way to increase equity in your city. Why is this such an important moment to invest boldly in transit? Phoenix is the fastest growing city in the country. We added more people according to the last census than any other community. As we do that, it's important to me, both as a mayor and as a resident of our community, that we do that in a sustainable way. We know we can reduce emissions and have, a, again, a more pleasant commute if we can get some cars off our streets. This particular round of investments really puts an eye towards equity. We would have the chance to build our light rail system into parts of my community where people are much less likely to own a car. This gives them a chance to have access to great jobs, higher education, and so many other things without spending a ton of money on insurance and Lord knows cars break down at the most inconvenient times. Um, I talked to one young person who would get a chance to be the first in her family to get a college degree and have the chance to ride the rail there. I also talked to a young man who used to work at the front desk of a hotel. He's now building light rail and he and his wife decided that with the paycheck from that project, they finally were in the financial position to start their family and have their first baby. So it's really exciting how these investments make a big difference uh, to people in our community. And uh, we're excited to see the, the economic development that goes with it. Uh, we've seen billions of dollars of investment along our light rail system. New employers want to be along transit. They want their workforce to have the chance to let someone else do the driving. And I also want to invite you, uh, if you're in Phoenix, to check out our system. We're able to host mega events like the 2023 Super Bowl because we have this light rail system that can get people from our downtown to great concerts, um, to the airport easily. We would never have the chance to move all those people if they were in single occupancy vehicles, but we are able to go big because of that light rail system. Uh, it's exciting to see those Siemens cars go by. Well, Mayor Gallego, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. And thank you for your leadership in this area. This is a moment when the investments we'll be making in infrastructure are going to be doing so much for us, creating jobs, helping to heal our climate, and truly shoring up the economic growth, which we know is ahead. Thank you. Thank you. I hope we'll look back on this and say we were present at a transformational time for the United States. Indeed. And now, back to Washington Post Live. Good afternoon. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for the Washington Post. Let's continue our conversation on infrastructure with Steve Sisolak, the governor, Democratic governor of the great state of Nevada. Governor Sisolak, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate being here. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you again as well. We just heard from Secretary Granholm, a former federal, uh, former governor of Michigan, about America's uh, infrastructure needs. What are Nevada's infrastructure needs? Well, it was a pleasure to see Senator or uh, Secretary Granholm again. She was out here in Las Vegas a little bit back, a little bit while back, and had the pleasure of having a few meetings with her and a couple roundtables. Uh, our infrastructure needs are the same as everyone else in the country, and it depends kind of how you define infrastructure, but we certainly need help with the roads, the bridges, rail, uh, electric grid, electric charging stations. 
that sort of thing. And then as she gets into the expanded definition of infrastructure, we have a tremendous amount of need here. Now, it's not just for the uh, projects themselves, it's also the uh, jobs that are associated with this. You know, I'm all about creating jobs and keeping our people working. And these are good paying union jobs that provide people with an ability to support themselves and their family. And I'm certainly advocating for every single one of those jobs we can get. You know, if correct me if I'm wrong, um, you've there's one estimate that says um, that the the infrastructure bank that that you created the seventy five million dollar program uh, sixteen thousand construction jobs by the end of twenty twenty three correct correct yes that right so are are Nevada businesses on board with with this plan I believe that they are and I believe the general public is on board with this plan it's been talked about before but my administration with our last legislature was the first one that finally put you know, rubber to the road and got this plan engaged. And, and I'm proud of the fact that we funded to this extent. And in my opinion, this is just the beginning. We need to do more and more and have this bank available to provide the money for these projects as we move forward. And with help from the federal government, I'm confident we can put a lot more Nevadans to work. And you've got to understand during the pandemic, Nevada got hit harder than any other state in the country. And a lot of that, you know, loss was in the hospitality industry. And we're doing everything we can to come back and we're coming back better and stronger than ever before. But we've still got a lot of people that need to be retrained, that we need to get back into the workforce. And I'm, I'm pleased that we're making a lot of progress and I'm intending to move forward with every single job we can get here. Mm -hmm. Let me get in the weeds on this on this infrastructure bank because I want to make sure um, that not only I, but everyone understands it. The $75 million that is being used, I guess, to seed this infrastructure bank is coming is basically government government money, state government money, correct? And then I have a part two. Yeah, that is correct. It is state money that was allocated in the last legislature. Right. And then you said um, either it was, I, I think it was in the video that we just showed leading up where you said you would use that money to leverage, to leverage into more. Talk more about how that $75 million investment is going to, could potentially catapult this infrastructure bank into being much bigger and funding much bigger projects. Yeah, this is initially the seed money. What we can do is work with different jurisdictions, different governmental entities, the federal government to get these projects started so that we can get the financing that can move forward on the size of the project. 75 million in and of itself is certainly not gonna create you know, thousands of jobs, but it's right. gonna create a significant amount and we can leverage this, get a project going and work in collaboration with whether it's one of our uh, cities or counties or utilities or whatnot to provide what I would call significant infrastructure to retool what we have and be able to uh, move into the 21st century, as I say. Mm -hmm. And these jobs, I mean, we're talking about a, an infrastructure bank um, meant to finance projects that, you know, it's a finite amount of time. Once a project is built or completed, it's done, those jobs potentially go away. But by building things like roads and solar panels and other things, you're creating an environment that attracts even more business from other sectors. Am I, am I getting this right from your perspective as a governor? You're getting it absolutely right. And it, it, you're absolutely getting it right, Jonathan. It feeds upon itself. Once you get it going, it, create, it attracts more businesses, 
there's more money coming in, we, we receive the bank, we get more and more moving forward, and we can continue to keep this. Once you get construction jobs, you will understand, as do the viewers, that these are you know not permanent jobs. These are jobs that uh, come and then they go and then they need to be replenished. We need to move on to another project. And that's the intent that it be a revolving issue and we can continue to create these jobs. Let me, let me get your thoughts on, on something. You signed a clean energy bill into law in June, which includes investments in clean energy transmission and energy efficiency programs. You've said this will help historically underserved communities. How so? Well, our historically underserved communities, oftentimes they're, they're asphalt jungles and they, you know, they're, they're kind of tied to you know, what we have existingly and, and they don't get the benefit of new technology and the new jobs that are associated with that technology. We're hopeful to take this into all of our communities, our communities of color, our BIPOC communities that have never had the benefit before. So it's hoped that you know, by bringing this to the state and making sure that everybody gets the benefit, unfortunately, when beneficial programs are introduced, oftentimes our, our minorities, our underserved communities don't get the benefit of any of those programs. And we wanna do everything we can to make sure that they participate in this recovery and in these new programs. Mm -hmm. uh, you have been an advocate of electric cars for a long time. Um, you've proposed mandating that automobile dealers offer between 6% and 8% um, that the cars they sell be electric by 2025. And I'm gonna, this is sort of a question I asked Secretary Granholm um, earlier, who's also big into, into electric cars. What do you say to conservatives who would call that an example of government overreach by forcing business to do something that may not help its bottom line? Well, so I think it is gonna help their bottom line. Sometimes businesses need to be encouraged uh, to provide the, uh, the wherewithal to help their bottom line, to help our economy. Electric cars are the way of the future, certainly. I don't get to drive much anymore. My wife drives an electric vehicle and she absolutely loves it. And I'm confident the problem with electric vehicles at the beginning is they were higher priced. Now as electric vehicles are coming down in price, they're becoming available to more of the masses. And I think people can avail themselves of that. And most people do care about global warming and what we're facing. We've got a real problem, particularly in the West, Jonathan. We're suffering severe droughts like mm -hmm. we've never seen before. I was up in Northern Nevada at the Tamarack fire, at the Caldor fire, and you know it's dry. It's really, really dry and the wildfires are coming through, climate change is real, and there's always some deniers uh, that are gonna claim that it's not, but I can tell you, we are seeing the effects with the drought, with the fires, with the temperature in the West that we've never seen before. Right, and in fact, when we first met, it was when I was subbing for Lawrence O'Donnell, and it was around the time of the Caldor fire um, was, still, was still going on. You know, Governor, you issued an executive order last November announcing a goal of getting Nevada to zero or net zero net emissions by 2050. How, how important are electric vehicles to reaching that goal? And how likely is it that Nevada will reach that goal? Well, I'm confident that we're going to reach that goal because I believe the vast majority of the people I call Nevada home, our residents, want to reach that goal. I think it's very realistic, but electric vehicles are going to play an integral major part in getting there. Without uh, increasing our fleet of electric vehicles, it's not going to happen. You know, I'm advocating, and we've spent money buying electric school buses, you know, to try to change that fleet out. I mean, we've got 
thousands of school buses in Nevada and across the country, certainly, that, you know, to convert those to electric vehicles would electric buses would go a long, long way towards limiting the, uh, the emissions. You know, Governor, right now I'm, I'm looking down because I'm also keeping tabs on what's happening here in Washington and what's going on in Capitol Hill. You're on the other side of the country. How do you view what's happening in Washington right now when it comes to the, the arguments within your party, within the Democratic Party, uh, over the reconciliation bill, which right now has a price tag of $3.5 trillion? You know, well, debate is, you know, uh, a good thing. I mean, I think it brings forward new ideas and we discuss the issues. I am confident in our senators, Senator Masson and Senator Rosen and our congressional delegation, that they're going to represent what's best for the state of Nevada. And I'm hopeful that at the end, uh, it'll be passed and we'll get something. Now, will we get the whole amount? I don't know. That's for people in Washington, D.C. to decide. But I can tell you, we're going to put every one of those dollars that we can avail ourselves of to the best use possible to make sure we can accomplish good projects, we can build better roads and bridges and, and broadband, whatever it might be. We can do more work uh, to prevent you know, wildfires into the future and, and to work on climate change to the extent that we'll prote uh, protect our most valuable natural resources. Lake Tahoe, which is, I will argue with anyone, is one of the most beautiful places in the world. If you haven't been there, you need to go see it. It's just absolutely amazing. Was in jeopardy this year as a result of these fires. And we gotta do better to make sure that it doesn't happen again. Now, you were mentioning your two senators who are, you sound happy with them, that they are representing Nevada's interests, but the nation's not talking about your two senators. The nation is talking about a senator to the south of you, Kristen Cinema, and a senator to the east of you, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. As the governor of a state that wants um, both of those infrastructure packages pass. How frustrating is it that the fate of both of them now sits in the hands of two senators from, from not your state? Well, and I think the focus put on those two senators, Senator Sinema and Senator Manchin, certainly. But when it's 50-50, it really rests on every single one of them. You can't have one vote go south or you're going to lose. And, and I'm confident that our senators do a great job representing us. I know they advocate for the state. And I believe that Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema want the same thing. They want a better quality of life. They want people to be able to get a job and support their family. And they want us to uh, work on climate change and the issues that we're facing. Now, how we get there, there can be a difference of opinion in terms of how much you spend at a time and how much a deficit should be and how much you want to borrow and those sort of things. And I respect that. I respect the different viewpoint. But I am hopeful and I'm confident that in the end, in the long run, they will come together and do what's best for everyone in the United States of America and they'll pass the bill. Um, how damaging would it be um, <clears throat> to the president of your party, to President Biden, if neither of these infrastructure packages makes it to his desk to become to become law? Well, it would certainly be damaging. It would certainly be damaging, but it would be more damaging to the hundreds of millions of people that are going to suffer as a result of that. That's who this is really about. You know, we can talk about Manchin or Cinema or President Biden. We can talk about those individuals. But I want to talk about families. I want to talk mm -hmm. about workers that are going to be irreparably damaged if we don't get this handled. That's who this discussion should really be focused on. 
That's what we need to place the emphasis on is how much this means to everyday moms and dads that are taking their kids to school every day that have to worry about the roads. They have to worry about their vehicles. They have to worry about their bridges. They have to worry about day-to-day -day things while they're trying to support their families. And elected officials, we need to do more to make sure that they're represented and that they're, uh, we, we have their best interests at heart at all times. You know, Governor, speaking, speaking of workers, excuse me, it reminded me that um, I believe it's a, a third of casino workers um, are, are still out of work as a result of, of the pandemic. What's being done um, to help them to help them get back to work? Well, we're doing all we can. We've got Worker Week out here this week in, in Nevada. We're doing what we can. A lot of those workers, Jonathan, unfortunately, those jobs are not coming back. It's not that the workers aren't coming back. The jobs aren't coming back. Some of the hotels and resorts have come up with ways that they are getting by with less workers and workers doing more in the same position. So we have, in my uh, opinion, a responsibility to retrain these people, so these individuals, so that we can put them to work. Working with Culinary 226, I mean, they're amazing. They've got uh, tens of thousands of people that we still need to retrain and replace. And we're doing everything we can to make sure that we can find a place to put them. And I think it's getting better uh, as we're back to full capacity in all of our restaurants and in hospitality businesses. And uh, we need to make ourselves available so that if they need training at the Culinary Center, or if they need another sense of training, working with our community college, we can provide that access for them so that they can retool themselves. And if that means going into another career, that's fine. I mean, I had a governor's office of economic development meeting last week and we approved uh, abatements for two large can manufacturing companies, uh, two electric car companies, a distribution company for Kroger, a distribution warehouse, which is thousands of jobs in total. Now, some of these people are gonna have to be replaced into those jobs. And, you know, so that they can support themselves and their family. But we're doing what we can to get away from being 100% reliant upon the tourist and hospitality industry. And I think we've made a lot of progress in that regard. Mm -hmm. We just have ways to go. You know, Governor, should casinos require vaccination? Well, I'm leaving that to them as a business decision. I can tell you that uh, we're doing everything we can. I'm doing everything we can. I work with Allegiant Stadium. We require vaccinations to go in and watch the Las Vegas Raiders play, who are now 3-0, and and people have filled the stadium every single time they've gone there. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of businesses are requiring vaccinations. Some are requiring it for new hires. Some are requiring it for uh, current employees. And, and right now, I'll leave it to them. Our positivity rate continues to trend downwards. Our positive cases are trending downwards, and we're not straining our healthcare system. But uh, vaccines work. I mean, there's no other way to put it. They're free. They're safe, they're effective, and they're available. So I would encourage everyone to get a vaccine and do what they can, not just to protect themselves, to protect their families, protect our jobs, and protect our economy, because that's really what this is all about. Governor, we've got less than two minutes left, and I want to end with this. Um, right now, in here in Washington, we're dealing with the potential of a government shutdown, fighting among Democrats about reconciliation package while the bipartisan infrastructure bill sits in the house waiting waiting for a vote and then on top of all of that there's the looming debt ceiling crisis as a governor who um, um, has uh, budgets that ha he has to meet and um, is closer to the people and hears from the people what message do you have 
for the folks here in Washington on Capitol Hill who are in the middle of negotiating and arguing with each other uh, over budgets and price tags and programs? I, I, the best suggestion I would give is this, Jonathan, I appreciate the opportunity. I've been involved at a different level with our state government. When you get in the heat of the moment, you get into arguing with your opponents about what's good and what's bad and what's the best. I try to go back to the same thing is remember what is best for the people that you represent. Remember what is best for the citizens in your state, for the people that call Nevada home, for the people that call the United States of America home. We need to keep in mind, these are folks that every day, they get up, they put on their boots, they strap on their belt, and they go to work. They take their kids to school. They come home from work. They help their kids with their homework, and they do it all again tomorrow. We need to remember that they are what we are elected for. We are elected to represent their best interests, not what we might feel about a particular issue or what we might think is best. We need to always try to keep in mind, and this is what I try to do, what is in their best interest, the majority of the people? And I'm confident that if everybody did that, and they did some soul searching and looked deep into their heart, what's best for the citizens that they represent, we'll come up with a plan that'll work for everybody and everyone will benefit from it. A great way to end this conversation. Governor Steve Sisolak of the great state of Nevada, thank you very much for coming to Washington Post Live. It's a real pleasure. Thanks, Jonathan, for having me. Have a great day. Thank you, you too. And as always, thank you for tuning in to check out our upcoming interviews. Head to WashingtonPostLive.com to find out more information and to register. Once again, I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Thank you for watching Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com dot com.